Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. This is Lisa Anderson with you and a little preview as usual. Later on for our inbox, we are in the middle of the holiday season and this is a very appropriate question from a listener who wants to know, what if your parents don't approve of your significant other? And obviously, some people brought them home for Thanksgiving, some people are going to do that for Christmas. (laughs) <laughs> so fortunately, one of our counselors is going to give some thoughts on that. And then for our culture segment, Bob Lapine is back with us to share insights on how to be honest about your past baggage before you get married and how is that going to play into it. And so helpful advice for dating couples based on his book, Build a Stronger Marriage. And so uh, stay tuned for that coming up. Well, here we are for our roundtable and we have got Katie, Roger and Chris here to have a conversation with me on on how to really recognize, honor, include, have conversations with people of different generations. And so I think we're a bunch of different generations represented here. So welcome, y'all. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Are we right here? I'm a Gen Xer, kind of in the middle towards the end of Gen X. Roger, please tell us what you... What generation you're part of? Well, if you ask my kids who are in their 40s, they would say, I'm a dinosaur. So <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much it. Is that like Paleolithic? <laughs> yeah, or what? well, you, you can put whatever word you want with it. Uh, yeah, they say I'm ancient, but... Uh, okay, yeah. we're just going to call you a boomer. I am a boomer, okay. that's for sure. <laughs> on, the, on the tail end of the boomer. Okay, we'll, we'll go with that. Chris, how about you? I am here on behalf of all the millennials. You are a millennial. Okay. Yes. <laughs> now, how, okay, so Katie, what are you? I'm a Gen Zer. You're a Gen Z. So I'm Z. the baby here. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, okay, Chris, how close to Gen Z? Or are you smack in the middle of millennial? I was, I was 91. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, so I'm kind of in the middle. Okay. I believe. Yeah. 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 So you're actually not, you're not even someone that has to try to pose as a Gen yeah. Z or, or vice versa. So that's good. Good stuff. Okay, good. So four generations are represented here and we're going to talk through, I, I think it's funny when we, we do this. I actually love having this kind of conversation because I used to have an employee who I was, you know, he was very much an old soul. And so um, I would kind of tease him about that because he always presented in some of his ideas even older than I in ways. But I would say, what would you say? Do you feel like you're pretty in all the stereotypical ways? Let's just pull out stereotypes and how you relate to others in your own generation. Um, do you feel like you you kind of are representative of your generation in kind of your thoughts, your attitudes, your kind of do you feel an affinity for that in some ways or do you do you identify elsewhere i don't know millennials i've i definitely feel like they had a really bad rap at the beginning of like 2015 it was just a very scapegoaty generation like oh these kids are ruining everything and i've (laughs) for the most part i disagree a lot like i just i think there's a large just scale of people in every generation that are going to be different. And in my personal opinion, I don't think that most millennials fit the stereotype and neither do I. Most of the time I see us as very hard workers, but definitely kind of sometimes lack the motivation of um, ambition, either not having enough or maybe too much. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Roger, how about you? 
Well, I think the risk is always involved in if we if we think in terms of stereotypes <clears throat> and, you know, Z's, millennials, old folk, uh, <laughs> you know, it really comes back down to, at least for me, I think I am representative pretty much of my generation, um, especially because I have children who are older than the rest of you sitting here. Uh, and so I've had a lot more time to at least contemplate the differences. Um, I think you might be right that, that many millennials get the bad rap. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, I've got grandkids that are going to, they won't be Gen Zs, but they will definitely be, they will be identified as something. Mm -hmm. So how do we, uh, you know, how how will I relate uh, to them in the culture that they're growing up in. It's certainly a lot different than the culture I grew up in. Yeah. Well, they have to circle back now to the front end of the alphabet and start over. <laughs> yeah. So there'll be A's, huh? Mm -hmm. Katie, how yeah. about you? I mm, see. I think there are some things that I do identify well with with Gen Z, but I cannot get behind the TikTok dances. <laughs> I can't do it. I just can't. Uh -huh. um, there, like, I think that my generation is very much like social media driven. Mm -hmm. I think that might be the stereotype per se. I am mm -hmm. not very social media driven. Hmm. I post on social media maybe twice a year. Like, it's, <laughs> it's not very often. I uh, I prefer to read and. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, a lot of like classic literature, and I actually listen to music from 40s, 50s, 60s, oh, okay. 70s, mm -hmm. 80s. Yeah, that's my generation. That's good. <laughs> yeah, my mom says that I have a fantastic playlist. She, she, every time I get in the car with her, I'm like, let's play the 80s playlist. She's like, oh yes, this is this is what I listen to growing up. That's well, because awesome. it seems very okay, and I'm Gen X, um, which is kind of a little bit of a lost generation. We're a pretty small generation, but um, very much kind of bridging that gap between pre-massive technology and certain certainly pre-social media, but then having adapted to technology pretty quickly, given the fact that we had to be pretty nimble. And I actually grew up in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area of California, and so felt the effects of that very, um, very early on as I was a child. So it is kind of weird. But Gen X likes to be very um, cynical about stuff, and we like <laughs> to think that everyone just forgets about us and doesn't care yet we're so important. So <laughs> anyway, um, well, it is interesting because I think, too, talking about millennials, uh, very much digital natives, you know, a lot mm. of, a, you know, obviously iGen, you know, a lot of people call millennials kind of that, that digital uh, tech generation. And obviously not having many millennials have very little concept of life before, um, say, you know, you think of like terrorist attacks like 9-11 and stuff. Yeah. A lot were kids at that mm -hmm. time. And obviously, Katie, you know, Gen Z, no recollection of that. So um, so there is a cultural shift, I think, that has happened that's really interesting. Um, but let's kind of take it now to the day to day, because I think most of us like to think that, oh, you know, we're pretty open. We're pretty, <laughs> you know, we love to work with people. We love learning from other people and stuff. But straight up, let's just talk about what some of the biggest challenges have been in relationships to people of other generations, or maybe some assumptions that you've had, or sometimes when it just, whether it's in the workplace, maybe it's with your own parents, maybe it's, um, or, or kids or grandkids in Roger's case, what is it when you're just like, oh yeah, this is totally a different world or a different perspective? What are some <laughs> of the things that you notice? I think going back to social media, I remember um, growing up, I remember 
thinking, oh, my parents don't understand anything about the world that I'm growing up in because they didn't have Instagram, they didn't have TikTok, they didn't have, you know, for a lot of time, they didn't have Facebook. So it was, for me, I, that was always like a disconnect and that was a place where we really um, disagreed a lot of the time um, when it came to things, you know, on the internet. They were very much like, oh, you don't need that at all. And it's, and when I was younger, I was very much like, no, but that's how I'm going to actually like talk to people and see what they're up to, et cetera, et cetera, which I do understand now that I'm a little bit older. I'm like, yeah, actually, they were kind of right. I really didn't need that. <laughs> but that was definitely a point of contention mm-hmm. in my household. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And with what you were saying about millennials being uh, the tech oriented generation, it it's one of the really odd things that I've found is um A lot of the time I find myself relating with the younger generations a lot better. I just a lot of the time feel that my energy carries better to where we can just both get excited about something and basically be like two excited dogs just hyping each (laughs) other up because like (laughs) the human's home. But um, with the technology aspect, I remember I was in like sixth grade when MySpace came out. My dad was very protective over me with uh, social media in general and it's just very weird because as I've gotten older, it's almost become disingenuine to me. It's just, it, it's not as interesting as it used to be. Um, but uh, now when I look at my parents, a lot of time they're on social media a lot more. So it's just interesting how the tables have turned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm not so much the social media person at all, actually. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, and yet I have grandkids who um, are tending that direction because everything in their world is technology. I mean, they to sit down and read a book, mm-hmm. uh, that's almost foreign to them. But yet, if you walked in my office at my house, you'd find an old, very old computer, but you would find 15 feet wide and 9 feet high of bookshelves filled mm-hmm. with books. Um, and so I, I come from a little bit different era, obviously. But I find if I go back to kind of part of the question is how I relate, um, as you know, uh, Lisa, Diane, and I have been doing marriage and pre-marriage counseling and stuff like that. And most of the young couples that we deal with are all younger people. Mm-hmm. They're the they're the millennials. I mean, it started out teaching Bible studies, and there were kids that were going to high school and then dating and then getting engaged and getting married, and one thing led to another. So for us to be able to relate uh, from if I could if I could describe it this way. It's really uh, an, quite an interesting place to be when you're older that I can, in es- essence, um, relate upward because it's not t- too much further to go <laughs> up, but I can also relate below. It's, it's like being in the middle of the road. Mm-hmm. If, if, you know, if you are just the average Joe, relating upward and relating downward uh, to people older, to people younger is not... Uh, that difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, it's when you're really old and you can't relate to the youth, or they're really young and really don't have an understanding of re- of trying to relate to the elderly. And I'm kind of like in the middle of that, so mm-hmm. it's worked well for us at this point. Yeah, mm. it's interesting because you said you know Roger referencing your library and stuff like that, and you don't have that old of a computer. Like, would you say? Do you feel like sometimes when you think about that, or in comparison, especially with what younger 
younger adults and even teens and and younger kids are doing, do you get like a little feeling of like a self-righteousness about that? No, actually, I don't. I think if I was to really describe it, it actually becomes more troublesome to me that so many young people are are thrust into this a culture that doesn't even take time you know there's the old phrase that we actually hurry to be late mm-hmm. life is just going so fast and uh, and people are always looking for the next thing or the new meaning or whatever that might be and we could see all the stuff that goes on in our culture i grew up in the vietnam era you know out of high school and wondering if i was going to be able to get through uh, a, a war and survive and someday have a family. Um, and yet, um, you know, I grew up where the things, the technology, all that stuff, the fast pace, mm-hmm. um, actually, it's indicative of one of the reasons why 30 years ago, Diane and I moved out of California to give mm-hmm. our children coming to Colorado then a slower pace of life mm-hmm. and in uh, a perspective that says to be able to sit and rest and be quiet we don't do that so much because we're bombarded wow. with all this technology. It's it's just overload all the time. Mm-hmm. And I came from a place where it wasn't overload. I mean, my parents didn't have the technology. And you sat down as a family and interfaced. Go to a restaurant today and mm-hmm. watch people sit. Yeah. And and nobody's communicating. They're just everybody's on their phones. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the big difference between, if I could say, the younger generation and my generation mm-hmm. even. I like that idea, one-on-one, face-to-face mm-hmm. conversation and not stop. Te- I tell my kids, don't text me. Just call <laughs> me. We can have a discussion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's interesting because as like a Gen Zer or even a millennial, how do you guys feel about that? Because I think that there is a tension of like, I mean, there are people in your generation who are like, absolutely only at my last dying breath will I actually make a physical phone call. <laughs> like I, <laughs> I want to just like text people yeah. or I will hit you up some other way. You know, I'll send you a DM or something. Mm. I mean, does that seem like... Because, again, I think it's very easy for and as someone who's kind of you know, straddled both sides of a couple of these generations, realizing that we tend to, as we get older, we're very nostalgic for and wistful for how things were. They always seem mm. simpler. They always seem like more real, mm. more, um, you know, just more relational in that sense. And then but I could easily see, you know, a Zier or even a millennial saying, Okay, but yeah, but you're kind of falling behind or but what about technology or you got to keep up, even though there's probably a sense of, yeah, the sense of it being simpler is kind of appealing to you as well. You know, I think about it. I had a a mentor who is now 95 and he's been my mentor for almost 49 years Mm -hmm. and his his communicate to me when I was in my 20s, if you think about that. Uh, which was a long time ago, by the way. Um, But when I think of what his perspective was, having come out of World War II, he said, Raj, just keep it simple. Even when it came to debt, you know how to stay out of debt, Raj? No, how am I going to do that? He said, well, use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. Hmm. That doesn't seem to be the mentality. But when you think about it, that's exactly what Diane and I did in our life. That was the advice we got. We kept our life simple. And here we are at this age with grown kids and grandkids, and life really is still simple to us. Mm-hmm. And I, even even walking a Christian life, it's it's not rocket science. Why do we make everything so difficult? Mm-hmm. And sometimes technology confuses all that, yeah. or the influx of just more and more and more stuff and things to think about. Mm-hmm. And now we can't even decide 
<laughs> you know, are we male or female? Those kind of yeah. struggles are, I mean, I worry about my grandkids growing up with that mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of new info, influx, yeah. Any comment, you guys? Um, in terms of simplifying versus undersimplifying, I I do think that there should be a purpose for what you're doing. And I've mm-hmm. I've very much tried to simplify my technological life. I used to be the biggest gadget guy in the world. Like I needed the newest like smartwatch, I needed the newest phone, I needed like all of the game systems, the newest computer, everything, but just after a while I was just realizing like, man, I'm wasting a lot of money on stuff that isn't a serving me or B giving me something. And it's just, it's been really odd. Um, almost how liberating and freeing it is mm-hmm. to have to make sure that when you're investing in something uh, like, again, even with social media, like signing up for a new uh, website or reaching out or posting on social media, that there's a reason for it as opposed to just doing it because you feel social pressure or just cause. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I would agree. I think that, um, especially in the last like couple years, um, I realized that a lot of stress and anxiety was coming from being on my phone a lot and mm. being on the internet a lot. And um, I actually put um, like the the timers on or whatever it is on the iPhone where you can actually say like, after this amount of time, you're supposed to shut down this app. Mm. And also the do not disturb feature is beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Love the do not disturb feature. And I do that a lot at work and I, I make it a goal. Like, especially if I see that my screen time is going up, um, like, past, like, three hours a day, then I'm, okay, being way more conscious of when I'm picking up my phone and talking or, or like, using it going on social media because it's just not – it doesn't feed your soul Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like you said, Chris, I think it's really important that we have a purpose. And I think Mm -hmm. it is really um, important that we keep it simple. There's no Mm -hmm. need to give yourself that anxiety or give yourself that stress of doing those things on your phone or on your screen or whatever it is. Mm. Um, and it gives you way more time to be intentional with other people and have good conversations in person, mm. which I think is super important. I, re- I remember, like, I had a boyfriend not that long ago that was on his phone all the time, all the time. Like, I, we would be in the middle of a serious conversation, and then he would just, like, pull out his phone and just start <laughs> typing. Like, it was just, like, natural for him to do that. Yeah. And mm. I was like this is not the way that it's supposed to be. (laughs) Like we're supposed to be having like we're God created us to communicate with one another and to be personal with one another and to Mm -hmm. get to know one another, one another. And the phone is just getting in the way of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what, um, what would be examples like uh, Roger gave an example of how he and his wife are mentoring younger couples. What are some other examples of how you actively extend yourself to people of other generations? Like who do you have in your life? Or if you don't, do you see that as a deficit? Like how well do you do in that space and what kind of benefit do you get kind of both ways from interacting with others of different generations? Mm -hmm. Well, I make it a point to call my family at least once a week. Um, And I try, especially um, my grandmother, um, I try to be in touch with her on a regular basis. I'm probably going to go spend Easter with her um, because there's so much wisdom. Like, there's so much wisdom from the older generation. Like, they've lived through way more than I have. And yes, my generation is a little bit different than theirs, but that doesn't mean that they they don't have anything to teach me. And I think that it's super super important to connect with them and understand their perspective 
And I found that, um, especially with my parents who didn't grow up with the social media and things like that, I'll, I remember, I can remember so many times where I would call being like, oh my gosh, this is such a big deal. I don't like, I would be in tears. And my mom's just like, it's really not that big of a deal. Like, why are you, (laughs) why are you freaking out over this tiny thing? It really isn't anything that you should be worrying about or stressing about. And even though that's a little thing, I think that it's really important to be in touch with those older generations. A, because it's super respectful, especially to your family, to be keeping in touch with them. But also B, I think that we can sometimes get in the mindset of I know everything because Mm. of X, Y, Z, and you don't understand this thing. But I think that's a very, very prideful mindset to have. And it can be dangerous. Yeah, with um, I recently turned 31 and it's been very odd how much more adult my problems have been feeling recently. And one of the coolest ways that I've been able to relate and even help um, just either a, just really people in my family is um, with kind of fresh perspective as opposed, because I'm, I'm definitely being fed by my grandparents and parents and uh, things of that nature. But at the same time, being able to give them a fresh perspective and have a conversation as opposed to the normal, just like, Hey, this is how you fix it. Like, let's move on with your life. Mm -hmm. Kind of like you were saying, it's like slowing down and actually having a conversation has been, it's just been so powerful. And I feel that I've gained so much more wisdom from listening and having a conversation as opposed to just either a me like telling them like, Hey, this is how I fix my problem. Uh, I'm on to better things now. Cause that's not the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, or, or even be just opening up to where we're able to learn something from each other at mm-hmm. the same time. Cause we're ultimately all God's children. We're all going to I, I don't know how it's going to be in heaven exactly, but I assume we're going to be around the same age. <laughs> and uh, it just, I, I always think that's a really cool way to respect uh, and see other people is that your parents and grandparents are just people that have a lot more wisdom in you. The shell that they're in means nothing when we're in heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, when we live in a culture that either discredits the youth for what they have to offer, mm. or we discard the elderly f- for what they have to offer. Um, it's it's really uh, quite a travesty mm. uh, for for humanity because um, when you think about, I'll, I'll give you an example. I was just telling a young man today uh, that I've been mentoring. I said, you know, when I've I've been a Christian for fifty years, fifty one almost now, and I said, and hopefully I've learned something in that time frame. And so for me to give that away to the youth that are just trying to figure life out, um, but where did I even glean a lot of the things that I've learned in my lifetime is because I have a mentor who's 95 and he's been in my life. And my parents were there until, well, my mom's still alive at 94. And recognizing that that every generation has something to offer, mm. even the Old Testament uh, scriptures, when we think about what's there and you look in the New Testament and it says this, it says something to the effect of, that these things were written for our instruction so that we wouldn't essentially crave the evil things that they craved or mm-hmm. do the things that mm-hmm. they they did back in in that you know that first second third generation or whatever and so there's value in looking uh, at the aged we live in a culture that wants to discard that and throw it away and yeah. discount it uh, and yet the youth coming up, the energy that they bear and mm. and the and the hope that they're 
hoping to have someday. Um, I'm living a life at my age, it'll be 70. I'm living a life that says life has been good and I've enjoyed it, and I haven't had to go after all the the riches of the of the world and drive the the cars and the big houses and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And yet, God has blessed us with more than we need. And yet, at the same time, I see grandkids coming up in a culture, and I think I want to pour into their lives as much as I can mm-hmm. uh, while I can before the world actually indoctrinates them with the things mm-hmm. that are contrary. Mm-hmm to yeah. everything that I believe. So, yeah. you know, we all have much that we can offer one another if we would just take the time, as you said, shut off the phone, spend time talking. Yeah. Wow. Well, good good word, Roger. And uh, thanks, you guys, for being willing to speak a little bit into this. It's like it goes so fast when we start talking about these things. But mm-hmm. I think it's a good conversation starter for those of us, especially heading now um, into the remainder of the holidays and conversations that may take place to just be curious and be good listeners and active listeners and learn from others. It's a great place to be. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to Boundless. I'm Bob Lapine here with my good friend, Lisa Anderson. Lisa, so great to have you on your podcast today. Bob, it is so great to be here. (laughs) Okay, we were just cracking up because Bob is like, I mean, I know you guys think that I'm an amazing host, and I am, okay? Indeed. I I feel like sometimes I've almost been hosting as long as Bob, but that's not not true at all. Um, I had to let Bob do the lead-in because he legitimately was the co-host of the wildly popular radio program Family Life Today for... 30 years? Was uh, tw- 28. It? I 28. got almost to 30 That's pretty years. much, we're calling that 30. Okay. okay. I'm good with that. That is crazy times um, with host Dennis Rainey. And, and one of our best guests ever on yeah. Family Life Today was Lisa Anderson when she came in to talk about a dating manifesto. What? And yep. you, you remember the day? Your flight was delayed no, or was something? Horrifying. It was And you yeah. got there finally as the office was closing and we went in. But but I just remember, <laughs> I went home that night and said to Marianne, Lisa Anderson's amazing and her book is wonderful. Wonderful, and I, oh my I became a raving fan that day. Well, you are very sweet to say so. You and Dennis literally just sat there and didn't even have dinner. <laughs> I had all these plans for like touring, you know, family life and meeting up with people. Yeah. And it was my, the worst part of that day was sitting, it was a layover in Dallas. They had massive thunderstorms and the pilot came on and said, folks, we are 93rd in line for takeoff. <laughs> and we were about three minutes 
minutes under the two hour mark before they would have had to bring us back into the gate after sitting on the tarmac that long. So it was terrible. But the good news is I did get to talk to Bob and Dennis. So and I it was a that. wonderful radio program. Folks can Google Family Life Today, Lisa yeah. Anderson, and find it and listen to it. The Dating Manifesto. It's a wonderful program. It was it was really fun to talk to you guys about that. So, um, well, now, I mean, and it, this is like so crazy because, Bob, you know, I mean, we're talking about you and your years in radio. Um, you are also teaching pastor at Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock. You're married to Mary Ann. You have five adult children. You have 10 grandchildren. You are an author. You're a speaker. Clearly, you're a pastor. Um, you also have a high affinity for tunes throughout the decades, <laughs> because I know that we've uh, connected on that level yes. a number of times as well. Although I did have to confront you that, you know, he used to leads this name that tune kind of fun stuff at conferences. And I was like, uh, you need to bring this up a few decades, dude, because <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about in the 50s and 60s. So anyway, I felt like I very appropriately and biblically Matthew 18. <laughs> him on that yes, yeah thank you and uh, <laughs> and it's now all good but I've, I've learned what a hair band is from you so for thank sure you for that. yeah for yeah. sure so in all of Bob Lapine's free time uh, he just sits around and writes books and we had him um, not too long ago actually to talk about his book love like you mean it and now he is back today to talk about build a stronger marriage which is funny so I, I don't want any of you to check out right now because here's the deal um, this it, it, it's basically Basically, the sub on it is the path to oneness, and he talks so often. And you've done how many years of premarital? I mean, uh, how many? A billion decades, couples, yeah, probably. A, of, yeah. a billion couples. So talking through a lot of the common issues that couples face and don't even know that they're facing going into marriage. But there is so much that we as singles and whether you're a younger adult or kind of an older single adult can glean from this. And so um, I love it when we get a mentorish type in the studio and we can just pick your brain. So are you I, ready for it? I, I'm ready. I remember all of the single listeners who listen to Family Life Today who would tell us all the time, I'm listening and I'm learning, and should God ever open that door, I will be more ready for it as a result. And if he doesn't, I know how to do relationships better as a result of learning yeah. what married couples need to learn. So hopefully yeah. we can help with that. Everything here to learn. So so the first thing I want to ask is, as you're thinking of premarital and the many sessions you do, I'm assuming you have a fair number of couples, although I feel like with digital technology nowadays, it seems like so many younger adults, especially millennials and now Gen Z, are much more about we got to figure things out. We're, they're more proactive in like, you know, I, I know friends of mine who go on a date with a guy and they give him like four personality assessments. And it's like, <laughs> how am I going to drill down, find out, you know, all this compatibility and what what's his theological bent and all this. But I would imagine there's a fair amount of um, maybe some blind spots of people heading into counseling, maybe some things they haven't thought of. What would you say the general tenor is or some of the common themes you see among couples that maybe you recognize, okay, we're going to have to do a little work here? I, I think you've made a really astute observation, and that is that a generation ago, people would come to premarital counseling and they'd be all goo-goo-eyed and they'd just go, <laughs> mm -hmm. we don't need any of this and we'll be fine. We love the Lord and we love each other and everything. It's just going to be great. And now uh, the, the next generation has watched those marriages shipwreck a lot of them and have said, we're not going there. So I must have every box checked. I must know everything there is to know. I don't want any surprises 
in marriage and everything's got to be wired up perfectly. And I would say both approaches miss the mark. Mm -hmm. And I would say to, to couples who are thinking about marriage, what you need to know is in the essential areas, spiritual compatibility, common convictions about spiritual matters, um, th that's going to be the foundation on which a strong marriage is going to be built. Yes, you, you need to have mutual attraction and there need to be some personality blending and common interests. It's It's got to be more than just we like the same bands, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but by the same token, um, I think there are many people today who are thinking there can't be any room for there to be any disagreements about anything. We have to be on the same page about everything. Well, you're never going to find anybody who thinks exactly like you. And part of God's design for marriage is for the idols in your own life and heart to be surfaced and to be put to death. You're going to find things in marriage that you thought were really, really important. And God's going to go, no, these aren't as important as you thought they were. Mm -hmm. So let's surface those and let's recognize that there are more important things than whether the toilet seat should be up or down or the toilet paper should mm -hmm. come under or go over, those kinds of things. So I, I think for couples going into premarital counseling, couples exploring, is this a compatible relationship? Mm -hmm. I say you want to focus on spiritual compatibility and then mutual attraction. Those are, are two very important parts of all of this mm -hmm. and leave some room for the fact that you you don't think exactly alike about things, and that's going to be okay. Yeah. Marianne and I have said to one another more than once over the years, different isn't always wrong. Sometimes it's just different. And we've said it because I'll say, let's do this. And she goes, why would anyone do that? Who... How, why do you even think, how did we ever get married? She said to me, how did we ever get married as differently as we think about things? Mm -hmm. She's a vegetarian. I'm a carnivore. She she likes health food. I like, I think extra sugar is health food, right? So I we're, we're very different with our better. dietary habits. But you know what? That's not what a, what a marriage is founded on. It's not founded on your, your eating habits or on your preferences for how you want to spend your free time. It's founded on common convictions around spiritual matters and then a mutual attraction. Yeah. So here's here's the deal with me, Bob. I want to marry a guy who is willing to take down his idols off the shelf so that there's room for years, more of mine. <laughs> I mean, I think it's so true that it's so easy for us to see everyone else's issues or everyone else's, you know, the, the way that we're hoarding or we're about my wants, my needs, my feelings, as Paul Tripp puts it. Um, it is really funny when we have to turn and, and point the finger back at ourselves and say, okay, what kind of self-examination do I do? And I love how you say in the book, and I kind of want you to comment on this a little bit too, that there's a lot that comes back to motivation for getting married. Yeah. And I think sometimes people can be skewed even in that, which, you know, I think you described in the book as like, you know, if there are cracks in the foundation, you got to look at those first. So talk a little bit about where people might be a little bit blindsided by recognizing what bad motivations are. In the dating years, I've, I've talked to enough couples who are looking at marriage to recognize that sometimes it's not just uh, that we're drawn to one another. Sometimes uh, we want to get out of a bad family situation. Mm -hmm. And so the first person who comes along who says, I think you're special, we go, if you'll help me escape from this, I'm I'm ready to go with that. Sometimes there are people who are getting married because the biological clock is ticking and they think if I'm ever going to have a baby, which I really want to have, I've got to, I got to settle 
so I can have the baby. Sometimes there are people getting married because they think it'll be fun. They're just kind of have a superficial approach to marriage. I think it's important for us to to pull back and say, what what is it that is really pressing us toward one another? And I would tell you that when Marianne and I were dating, our motivations were superficial. So it's not like if you start with superficial motivations, you're never going to be able to have a happy marriage. You just have to recognize at some point in your marriage, the superficial motivations are not what cause a marriage to endure. So here's why, here's why I wanted to get married to Marianne, because when we were going out, she thought I was amazing. And I thought I was amazing. Mm-hmm. And so to have somebody else who would say, you're right, you are amazing. I wanted that person to be around every day mm-hmm. telling me that, right? Mm-hmm. That's a pretty superficial motivation for marriage. And what I realized was after we got married, there were more days when she didn't think I was as amazing as we had back mm-hmm. when we had limited exposure <laughs> during our dating times. And and then I recognized, okay, I should have a motivation to want to serve her and honor her. I read my Bible and it said stuff about dying to self and husband laying down your life for your wife. I said, so I'm going to just make it my goal to make sure she's happy in marriage. And then I realized that's not a healthy motivation because I was putting weight on her. I was thinking, it's my job to make you happy, which is not my job. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, Lisa, I came to the point where I recognized the, the right motivation for marriage is found in Psalm 34.3. I didn't ever think of that as a marriage verse until someone pointed it to me. He said, I proposed using this verse. Hmm. And the verse is, oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. Hmm. And when you stop and you say, the reason I want to marry you is because together we can do more to advance the kingdom of God and to magnify the Lord and exalt his name than we could do apart. And yes, I'm drawn to you. And yes, I think you're cute. And yes, I want to spend time with you. All of those are the sweetener on top of But But what I really want my life to be about is glorifying God. I think we can do that together better than I can do it on my own. Yeah, That's the right motivation. That is such a great point because I say that often even in dating of like, is this person pulling you closer to the Lord? I mean, are they constantly pointing you toward the cross, whether it's in having spiritual conversations, exhorting you towards something, praying for you, being the person who's like, hey, let's give of ourselves in service to this. I mean, are are they an enhancing your walk with the Lord um, or are they detracting from it? And yeah. you can often see, you know, in relationships, especially if we prop up other people or maybe there's, you know, some issues with other friendships or past you know, exes or whatever, um, that person is going to drag you down instead of really um, propping you up and pushing you forward. So I have to tell you, when Marianne and I, the the very first conversation we had, February 28th, 1975, and and we're sitting down on the steps. uh, We just had lunch together, and I'm starting to ask her, I'm starting to get to know her, ask her questions about her background. And I asked the question you should not ask the first conversation, but I asked her about past boyfriends, right? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> she was telling me about this one guy, David, and, and how she dated him, and then James. And I said, so what was the deal with James? Why didn't it Why didn't it stick? And she said, he really did not lead the relationship spiritually. And I nodded my head like, oh yeah, I, boy, I know exactly what you're talking mm-hmm. about. I had never heard those two words put together spiritual leader. I I didn't know what that meant, Hmm. but I sat there going, 
okay, if I'm going to get anywhere with her, Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to figure this one out. (laughs) And so I started faking it, you Mm -hmm. know, pretty early on. And I said, should we get together like before class and like maybe read a a chapter of the Bible together? (laughs) Read all of Isaiah. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And and I'm doing all of this because I don't know what else it means, but I want to know what it means because I wanted to spend time with her. Uh, Later, I learned there's more to it than just reading a chapter of the Bible together. But it goes back to your point. She was on the lookout for somebody who would would have Christ at the center of his own life mm-hmm. and at the center of, of that future relationship. I didn't know what that meant, but I learned quick because I wanted to spend time with her. Yeah. Well, you also mentioned you alluded to the past and in her case, you know, asking her about past boyfriends, which, yes, take Bob's advice. Don't bring that up at the first coffee. (laughs) You know, you might come across a little desperate and weird. (laughs) Envy can do weird things. Um, But I think it is valuable to look at some past stuff and and all of that. And you actually identify four key areas in the book that I want to walk through briefly here. Um, You kind of liken them. There's a nod to uh, getting a Carfax report. You Say you need a spouse facts uh, report. Wouldn't that be nice if I mean, when you were be, dating somebody you could get know, their spouse facts? I feel like I would pay thirty nine ninety five for that. You do that. Yeah, it would be very helpful. So, um, in looking at a prospective spouse, you talk about let's take the first two. Obviously, family of origin issues and including issues of trauma from childhood or young adulthood, even leading up into that. So talk about why those and and how you can maybe gain some ground in getting info on that, those two areas. Family of origin is where we learn how to do relationships. We learn how to communicate. We learn how to resolve conflict. We learn how to get along with other people. And so there are patterns that are ingrained and not everybody does it the same way. Some people do conflict loud. Some people do conflict in isolation. Hmm. Uh, Some people express love one way, other people express love another way. So when, when we look back at family of origin, we have to recognize that there are patterns that are ingrained that aren't the right way to do it. They're just the way our family did it. Mm -hmm. And when we recognize that, then in a marriage, we can start to see we're not, we're not connecting because We've, we're just relying on old patterns, and we need to learn some new ways of of relating. We need to leave father and mother and cleave to one another and figure out what's the best way to do this. I, I grew up, love was expressed in, in our family through words of affirmation. So I would say to Marianne, you're doing a great job. You're really, well, she didn't have a, a good self-image, and I would say those things. She didn't believe them. She was looking for quality time, and she was, I'm I'm using the Gary Chapman five love languages matrix, right? But she's looking for quality time, and she's she's looking for uh, acts of service. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm trying to cheer her on, and she's going, I wish you'd pick up a little bit. That would, that'd show me. (laughs) That actually helped. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And, and what we learned was, okay, these, this is our background. This is how we learned it. But now we have to learn, we have to expand our vocabulary. We have to expand our relationship uh, quotient to be able to make this work. So that's how it, with, with family of origin, I think we just can recognize what might be some of the dangers we would experience or some of the, the things we'd need to work on. If you grew up in a, a family that got loud around conflict and you marry somebody who shuts down with conflict, you just need to know you're going to have to figure out what your way of resolving conflict is going to be. And it's probably going to mean some kind of a 
a compromise or blend of what you guys are most used to. Yeah, that reminds me when uh, I had my friend Josh on the show and he was talking about conflict with his wife and growing up, you know, his home was very explosive and she actually told him one time, hey, you're kind of getting out of hand. And he's like, actually, this is my reasonable voice. <laughs> you haven't <laughs> they, seen out of hand yeah, yet. <laughs> you haven't even seen. This is me being just like normal and coming to the table with stuff. So they obviously had to have a conversation around that. All right, the second couple of issues I want to touch on. Um, you mentioned issues of shame and guilt related to sex, and then also just unaddressed relational wounds on different levels. How do those manifest themselves? Well, couples who are coming into marriage today, most of them are coming in with a sexual history, mm -hmm. some kind of sexual baggage that's been a part of their past, either just the two of them together or extended relationships. And I'm not just talking about whether it's been um, couples being physically intimate there may be foreplay or, or other things that have been involved it we have what couples have done ahead of getting married is they have aroused or awakened love before it's time that's what the song of solomon warns us about so when we come into to a marriage relationship with a sexual past or a sexual history we also have in our soul an understanding that we've we've stepped out of line with god's plan for us and i i think most couples today just sweep that away and never deal with it. And so there is this ongoing angst in your soul because you have never applied the gospel appropriately to the shame and guilt that comes from any sinful past behavior. And this is where couples have to come together and acknowledge that there was sin involved, that not just, I'm sorry we did it, or I'm, I'm feel ashamed. No, it, it has to be I sinned against the God of the universe in disregarding and disobeying his plan for us. So we have to acknowledge that. Then we have to uh, confess to one another and seek forgiveness for one another for how we wronged one another in these relationships. And, and then we have to turn away and want our sexual relationship to be honoring, which, by the way, I'll just say for married couples, you can have sex in marriage that is not honoring to God as well. So you want to have a commitment to making the marriage bed undefiled and without any stain or blemish. And in that in that kind of a setting, now the gospel is applied, forgiveness is experienced, you are cleansed from all unrighteousness because you've confessed your sins to God, and now you can walk away. And when when the guilt or the shame will start to emerge in your soul— you can say, you know, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you can do what I will often do, and that is recite the second verse of the hymn before the throne of God above mm -hmm. and say, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me and you can walk away and say I know who's trying to remind me of the shame and the guilt of the past I'm not going to hear it from him I'm going to walk in the gospel today and and I think that can bring healing to a lot of marriage relationships. Well, and I love how you give the example in the book itself. And again, folks, the book is Build a Stronger Marriage. We're going to give you more info on it. But um, you give the example of, hello, the Apostle Paul, 
of like talk about a guy with baggage yeah. and with like clearly some past patterns that the the spirit himself had to address. I think that's a great example and a hopeful example for us of realizing that change transformation is possible when the gospel is working individually in both hearts in a marriage and is at the center of a marriage. You, you read Paul's spiritual autobiography in Philippians 3 where he says, I thought I was all this. I was from the <laughs> tribe of Benjamin and I had this going. I studied under these guys. He said, I look at all of that and know what it is today. It's worthless. Mm -hmm. It's rubbish. I count it all as loss mm -hmm. for the, the gain of knowing Christ. And he says, so now forgetting what lies behind, mm -hmm. I press on. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of us, we have to forget in the same way that God has chosen to forget our sin. Mm -hmm. He remembers it no more. Mm -hmm. We have to forget our sin and press on. Wow. Okay, we cannot talk about marriage prep without talking about conflict. I think a lot of people, um, you know, and again, you were talking about older generations, many who were just googly eyed and like, <laughs> well, we haven't had any fights yet. So clearly this is going to be fine. Um, we have a lot of people entering marriages today that I think have some version of that or else they think, well, you know, it's okay because we're going to work it out. We're both like we, we both have masters in counseling or we're right. both psychology right. majors or whatever. Uh, so they're going to put some kind of stamp on it. But you're saying there are th some things in a relationship that um, you have to know the difference between what offenses need to be overlooked, yep. because we know Scripture makes a call to that in appropriate situations, but then what actually has to be confronted and dealt with. And how do we even start getting tools in a tool belt to go after either of these things? Well, you, you, I think you start with almost a default setting that says most offenses are going to be overlooked. Hmm. So you you mentioned scripture, Proverbs 19 says, it's a man's glory to overlook an offense. And then the New Testament says, love covers multitude a few sins. No, no, it's a multitude. multitude yeah. So I think it's our default there that most of the times when we are annoyed, offended, when we've been provoked, when there's been a microaggression in our marriage relationship, most of the time we're going to say, I'm going to pour grace on that. I'm going to choose to demonstrate grace and not be offended and overlook this and let it go. I, I think there are a lot of marriages today, a lot of couples today who are experiencing conflict where the right thing to do is just let it go, just pour grace on it and move on. Mm -hmm. But there are some ways we sin against one another, where we can't just overlook it, where the, the wound has been so profound, or where the experience of, of being sinned against in our own soul is so profound that we just, we can't shut it off. We can't just shut it down. And so in that case, the Bible says we are to confront one another, and the Bible gives us a pattern for confronting one another. And it's in Galatians 6, 1, that the pattern's laid out for us, where it says, if you see a brother who is trapped in a sin, I, by the way, I think that's important. It's not somebody who sinned against you one time, but there's a there's a pattern going on. So most of the time, this is going to be, we've seen a, a, an habitual pattern. When there is somebody sinning against you, trapped in that sin, you who are spiritual, that means you've done your spiritual work to get ready. You've prayed. You've read the scriptures. You've sought spiritual counsel. You are in the right spiritual frame of mind to go to this. You're not just running in hurt and wounded with an ax in your hand saying, I'm going to get you. 
You who are spiritual, the goal is to restore the person who's trapped. You want to get them out of the ditch they're in and help them walk with Christ in a God-honoring way. You presume that's what they want, and that's what you want for them. You do it with a spirit of meekness or gentleness. If you're not confronting with meekness and gentleness, you're not confronting appropriately, according to the scriptures. And you do it in such a way that you're on guard that you don't you don't stumble yourself. Conflict, when, when we engage one another around issues of conflict, when we go to try to seek or grant forgiveness or to help somebody who's trapped in a sin, it's real easy for that to devolve into uh, well, now I'm madder at you than I was before. We can spiral down instead of getting built back up. The enemy wants us isolated. Mm-hmm. He wants us. He doesn't want a rescue in this situation. He wants the problem to con- to remain. So we have a pattern here laid out for us that says, here's how you carefully approach confronting somebody who has sinned against you. And, and you lay out, here's how you've sinned against me and against God. And we've got to we've got to get help for this, and then you move through a process of healing and forgiveness and restoration, and then rebuilding trust. It's a long process, and it takes some time and some spiritual work. But the other side of it, again, is a, a glorious gospel proclamation that this is what Jesus does for us. He brings beauty out of ashes, and that's what's got to be our goal all the way through this. Yeah. It is. I mean, as you walk through it, it seems like such a tall order. Um, and it should give us all pause to say, like, is this something that I need to be running after? I mean, if we're just flying off the handle on every little thing and we're saying, you know, oh, will you hurt my feelings or you did this or whatever? I mean, running it through that grid, I think, is so um, helpful in that. And I do like how you also in the book, Bob, you talk about, in fact, you refer to it. I uh, We have it down here as um, comparing it to oil in a car. The one thing that marriages can't go without. And you just said it. It, it is Grace. Yes. What does it look like to grace in the sense of something that a person cannot muster up for themselves? We have to be willing to give that um, out of our, we would say our own resources, but ultimately those that the Spirit has put in us also as spiritual people. There's just no way that if we're going to sit around, whether in a marriage relationship, a dating relationship, a friendship, and keep a tally sheet and think that that's going to get us any kind of justice or any kind of right relationship with someone, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And, and of course, giving someone mercy, mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Mm-hmm. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. Mm-hmm. And so those two kind of fit together and pouring grace on an offense in a relationship, overlooking, pouring grace on it means I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you cheerfulness that that last comment does not warrant cheerfulness. Hmm. I could be easily offended by that last comment. Marianne, the other day, I I told her, I'm going to run up to Jess's chicken and get some chicken for lunch. And I came, I I went up, I ordered my chicken, I sat down, I ate my chicken, I came home. And she said, you were gone 45 minutes. And I said, yeah. She said, I thought you were going to get it and bring it home. And I said, no, I was going to eat it there. She said, well, you didn't say that you were going to eat it there. And I said, well, that was what I was planning. Well, why didn't you tell me? So here we are locked up in a little petty thing, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Pouring grace on that is to say, we didn't communicate well in that situation. I let you down. You had an expectation, all of this thing. Pouring grace means 
I'm not going to let this get between us. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to let this be the wedge that the enemy would like mm-hmm. to divide us, something that's so trivial. Again, grace is what God is known for. Think of the many ways throughout the day that we disregard him, ignore him, don't communicate well with him, the, the many ways that we offend him. And he doesn't go, well, I, I just won't have anything to do with you tonight. He pours grace on all of that because of his son. Mm-hmm. And when he pours the grace into your life, you can be a dispenser of grace to others. And I would say to people who say, I have a hard time pouring grace into somebody else. You need to revisit the grace of God in your own life and be a recipient of God's grace so that you can then be a dispenser of grace to others. Mm, so good. Well, folks, um, the book, again, we've been talking to Bob Lapine. Uh, the book is Build a Stronger Marriage, The Path to Oneness. And as you recognize, we've been talking a lot about the value of the principles in here, even before you are married, certainly as you are dating and whatnot. And so we want to make a copy of Bob's book available to you for a gift of any amount to Boundless. So if you go, um, you can actually just search, go to boundless.org, search for 774. That's this week's episode. You'll see the book cover there. Just click on it. Give a gift to Boundless for the work that we already do. You're part of our family, and I know so many of you support us. That's super awesome. Um, but when you do, we're going to send you a copy of Bob's book as our thank you to you. So you can make that happen. In fact, get have your friends get together and read this. I mean, it's just a great opportunity to do that. Bob, thank you again for being part of this conversation, for being a mentor in this space, for being such a cool dude, um, musical taste aside. Um, it's just always a privilege when we can see you face to face. I need to make a, a Bob Lapine playlist on Spotify and a Lisa Anderson playlist, and we'll just compare and see if we'll there's see. anything we'll that overlaps. Maybe there will be. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. So. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks again. We're finishing out the show by opening up our inbox where we answer one of your questions. And it is often the case where we bring one of our fantastic licensed professional counselors down here to answer your question. And this week is no exception. We have Tim Sanford here. Hey, Tim. Hey, Lisa. Good to be here. All right. Well, awesome to have you. I have got a short and sweet question for you, but this is a little bit packed. So you're going to have to take a stab at it. One of our listeners wants to know... What if your parents don't approve of your significant other? So that could be a person you're dating seriously, possibly someone you've now married. What does someone do with that? Okay. Well, yeah, you give me the the, the dicey ones here. Um, <laughs> first, first off, let's start with, as human beings, we always do things for reasons. So my first point is, 
try to get at, listen for what's the reason your parents are disapproving. I mean, try to understand what that is that's behind it. Um, I mean, is it just their own anxieties or do they really have some legitimate issues here? They might. So try to put the emotion aside, which is hard to do, and listen for that what's a real reason behind it. I mean, yeah, they may be ornery. They may be old. Who knows what they are? They may still have some good reasons. So, I mean, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. So that's important. Um, Another thing is get some good godly counsel, preferably from an older couple that knows you and knows your boyfriend or girlfriend or, or whoever, because a lot of times life and experiences gives those older people a wisdom to pick up on things that you might not be pick up on and save you some, some heartache down the road. So those are a couple things. Another one that's kind of really a hard question to ask is, will this divide my family? I mean, sometimes people are entrenched enough that this could actually divide a family. If not, which I hope not, okay, good. I mean, get your counsel, you know, think through things and be willing to accept the uncomfortableness. Mm-hmm. If it's likely to divide the family, then you're going to need to really stop and reconsider this relationship. I mean, if you're already married, you can't undo the marriage, no. But if it's a dating situation or whatever, you're going to need to really think that through. Because part of what helps us get through life is the family system that we're in. Even if it's not super duper healthy and wonderful, Mm -hmm. but it's still important to have those people around you to help you get through life. Mm -hmm. So if it's likely to divide up, you may have to really decide, do I want to spend the rest of my life without a support system with my family? Mm -hmm. And that may be okay right now, but what about when kids come? What about when grandkids come? What about when those major elements in life, accomplishments happen and you don't have your family? Mm -hmm. That's a tough question to have to ask yourself. Yeah. Um, That's a big one. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I like how you said to get some other objective eyes on this, because, again, sometimes we can be blind to the person we're dating um, or engaged to or whatever. And, you know, but at times, to be fair, maybe your parents are kind of knee jerk reaction. And so it's helpful to be like, like you said, at the front end, what are the actual considerations here of like, what are their concerns? Are you respectfully honoring them and listening to their concerns and not blowing them off and not being disrespectful? in that conversation. But then, yeah, what are other people saying about you as a couple and about this person? I mean, I, I just think that's wisdom. And a lot of times other people can see things that we can't. Right. Even sometimes our peers can see things in him or her that we can't see and things. So that's why that getting that extra counsel and a collection of counsel is really, really important. Yeah, so true. Well, thanks so much, Tim, for joining us for that. Um, all right, folks, that is it for this week's show. As always, you know, here we are heading into December. I can't believe this year is almost gone. This is crazy. But um, if you have not yet this year uh, had the chance to uh, maybe send in your Christmas card yet, you know that we did a call for that on social media and in our e-newsletter. We love it when you send us a Christmas card because that is our motivation here at Boundless to pray for you by name. And we will do that for every Christmas 
Christmas card that we receive uh, between now and Christmas. We will pray you into the new year. That's something we love to do. And so uh, send those Christmas cards to Boundless at 8605 Explorer Drive, Colorado Springs, Colorado. And our zip is 80920. So send us your card. We want to hear from you. That's it for this week's show. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family. Boundless.